From PRX and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we stand at the conversational crossroads of many world faiths as we look at religious pluralism with Union Theological Seminary Professor John J. Tatominil, author of The Eminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament, and the forthcoming book, Religious Diversity After Religion, Reimagining Theologies of Religious Pluralism. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're rebroadcasting an interview that we did in 2012 with John J. Tatominil. Dr. Tatominil is Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York. When we spoke to him, he had just published his first book, The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament. Since we aired our interview, he's at work on a second book called Religious Diversity After Religion, Reimagining Theologies of Religious Pluralism. He's chair of the American Academy of Religion's Theological Education Steering Committee, and he's a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. John Tatominil, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good to be with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Some of our listeners may be familiar, for example, with what a pastor does, but they may not be familiar with these other more technical terms. So I wonder, as a way of starting, could you briefly describe for our listeners what it means when we say that you teach theology and that you teach world religions? <laughs> it's a huge question, of course, as theology is one of those fields where we spend a lot of time thinking about what theology is. Uh, there are a number of fields that spend a lot of time talking about the field's own definition. But for basic purposes, I think we can say that theology is discipline reflection about the meaning of ultimate reality, by appeal to the sources, usually of one's particular tradition. That is, typically the theologian belongs or stands in a, in a concrete tradition, like Christianity or Hinduism, and then thinks about questions like, what is the nature of the human predicament? Why do we suffer? Is there a solution to our suffering? Is that solution to be found by engaging some dimension of reality that might offer us resources to deal with the human predicament. Um, Usually traditions speak of some ultimate dimension of reality. Christians, of course, will speak of that by appeal to the category God, whereas other traditions might use other terms for what they take to be ultimate reality, like Buddha nature or Brahman. So theology is usually understood to be situated, disciplined, reflection about these kinds of large questions using the resources of one tradition. Now, what's weird about or unusual about what I do is that I I think that uh, that's not enough, that we seem to cut ourselves off from a variety of resources if we only do theological thinking from within uh, one particular tradition. So my work, and that's reflected in the title of my, my job, uh, Professor of Theology and World Religions, is to ask all these questions, but in conversation with the resources of more than one tradition. You, you mentioned that you yourself see the theological task slightly differently than, than the classical definitions of theology. So could you speak a little bit to what you think the task of the theologian is today in terms of your own work? Right. Um, I think we live in a context that is marked by all kinds of diversity and multiplicity. In the United States, of course, uh, we've come now to think of the country as the most religiously diverse country, perhaps in the history of the world. Every religious tradition found anywhere in the world is found also in America. So when we ask questions about what is the world like, what is the nature of ultimate reality, what does it mean to be human, it seems arbitrary 
to do that thinking in isolation from the resources of one tradition alone. The other reason why such thinking seems limited is that increasingly many of us are informed by resources from more than one tradition. People might be Jews and yet also engaged in disciplined Buddhist meditation. And so you hear phrases like Jubu, persons who are both Jewish and in some sense also Buddhist. This is increasingly common in Christian churches where Christians might do Eucharist upstairs and yoga downstairs. So if people are actually living deep spiritual lives, but are living those lives being shaped by resources from more than one tradition, then theologians ought to be thinking about that. How does that work? How can that work well? Um, Just what does it mean to be inspired and shaped in one's life by resources that are found in more than one tradition? That kind of work is the kind of work I do. Now, I should hasten to add that I don't actually think that this way of proceeding is entirely new. I like to point out to my students that when the early church was trying to think about the meaning of what happened in the life of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, there were no Christian theological resources to do that thinking. Namely, every resource that that early uh, Jewish followers of Jesus had at their disposal to think about what happened to them were non-Christian resources. So, it's important to say that for a very large period of uh, formative moment of our tradition, we didn't have a tradition. (laughs) So, uh, we had to think about questions like, what is the nature of God? what, What does it mean to be human? With the resources of Greek philosophy, Hellenistic philosophy, so, you know, Plato, Aristotle... Uh, the, the Jewish scriptures. So, to some extent, the kind of thinking that a comparative theologian does these days is not sort of uh, an, a completely new ex nihilo reality, out of nothing reality. It is the way that the church began its thinking. And now we return to a mode of thinking that's more conversational in this moment of religious diversity. If, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, when you look at people being religious in America today, you mentioned the sort of hyphenated reality, and the one example you gave was the Jewish-Buddhist reality. And what I'm hearing you saying is that uh, a theologian's job is not simply to look at the doctrines that that are historically passed down from the faith, but to look at what human beings are actually doing and to reflect upon actual human religious practice. Am I hearing that correctly? I don't know whether I would dichotomize it that way. I think we are always trying to figure out what the historical doctrines mean. And, you know, part of that is a historical task. How were they formulated? What do they mean to the people who formulated them? Um, But then we also ask, can those doctrines be meaningful for our time now? And what do they mean now? When you ask that question, you're always back in conversational Uh, in a conversational idiom. You're trying to say something meaningful to people who use complicated religious vocabulary, whose minds and imaginations are shaped much more complexly and fluidly than theologians often think. That is, we think that we're shaped only by Christian categories, but we're shaped by a whole host of categories, and in our time, especially by uh, the categories and practices of other traditions. I mentioned yoga, for example. Um, There's a great many churches that are hosting uh, yoga practice in the church basement. Um, I wrote uh, a paper and gave a lecture called Eucharist Upstairs and Yoga Downstairs at a church. And as soon as uh, I finished giving that talk, people in the church said, oh, yeah, we do that here. (laughs) Did you know that? I said, well, no, actually I didn't know that, but I knew this sort of thing is increasingly common. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Tatamanil, Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. 
He's the author of The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament, and he is a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. You've written that Christian thinkers rarely recognize the practices and claims of other tradition, even as data for theological reflection. And that seems to speak to what you're saying right now, this notion that that we only draw from the Christian tradition in the story that we tell ourselves, but in actuality we're always drawing from these other traditions. So the Eucharist upstairs, yoga downstairs model is one example. But could you say a little bit more about what you mean by this observation that Christian thinkers rarely recognize practices and claims from other traditions? Yeah, um, other religious traditions are often studied in ethnographic mode. We are curious about what other people believe, but we rarely ask, what are the grounds for their believing? Do they have good grounds for what they believe? And how might what they believe shape what I believe? Those latter questions are often left out in Christian theological work, and more broadly, the way that academics study other religious traditions. So there's a a sense that you could sort of be interested in what other people happen to believe, but you sort of stop short from asking, is what they believe true, and in what sense might that be true? So that's part of what I'm trying to get at. So when you look at another tradition, you might look at it as data for your theory about what a religion is. So for example, an academic could study what Hindus do and believe, or Buddhists do and believe, as a matter of curiosity about what it means to be human, or in order to revise their theory about what it means to be religious. But the further question, is there something they know by virtue of practicing as they do, by way of believing as they do, that I do not know, because I only have this particular angle on reality, my particular angle on reality. That question is one the Christian theologians seem reluctant to ask. Would you consider this uh, sort of nearsightedness on the part of Christian thinking? Yeah, I think so. I actually don't even think that it would have held for, say, the work of the people who helped us formulate our tradition. Take, for example, Gregory of Nyssa, who was one of the instrumental church fathers who helped uh, in the very formulation of Trinitarian doctrine. When he was writing about the Trinity, he often made references to those positions that were outside the church, but who were his conversation partners. So, for example, he said that the Trinity is a middle position between the pagan love for the many and the Jewish love for the one. He said that both had something right, but both went wrong. Now, that's interesting. I mean, he's, he's willing to say, well, Jews love the one and they're right, but they're wrong to say that, that the, the one has no diversity in it. The pagans point to the manyness of divinity, but they go wrong when they go all the way to polytheism. We Christians are the ones who hold the middle. Now, what's it, what I find interesting about this strategy is that he is formulating the doctrine of Christian Trinity fully in conversation with people who are not members of the Christian Church. In fact, he, he, the very categories of his thought are such that they're shaped by that conversation. Even if he's saying no to some dimensions of another tradition, thinking about ultimate reality, he at least takes them seriously as conversation partners with whom he might disagree and from whom he might learn. And that is a mark of what I call comparative theology. It's theology done in conversation with people from other religious traditions. This is Things Not Seen, and we're listening back to a 2012 interview with John Tatamanil. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Tatamanil, Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He's the author of The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament, and he is a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Well, I have in front of me one of your articles entitled Comparative Theology After Religion, and in that title, the word religion is in quotation marks. Could you explain why you placed the word religion in quotation marks? Uh, that's a great, uh, a great question for us to think about, both for your listeners and for, for all of us in this historical moment. It turns out that the word religion is not nearly as universal as we think, that it has a particular history, and that for much of global history, 
most human beings have not thought of themselves as having religions. So people have always, uh, to quote, I think it was Wilfred Cantwell Smith who said this, have always had gods to worship, but it's only rather recently that they've had religions. What I mean by that is that the notion that some part of my life is religious and some parts of my life are not is an invention in part of modernity and in particular the West. It's part of the way we have managed to separate certain parts of our lives as secular and certain parts of our life as religious. But, again, that distinction is not really um, a universal way of proceeding. So part of what I'm doing is to say, well, how do we come to think of people as having religions? Um, Have people always thought of themselves as having religions? And how did we come to think of people as having at most one at any time? For example, most of uh, in, in most of human history, for example, in China, persons were influenced by Confucian, Taoist, and Buddhist practices all at the same time. The idea that you could only belong to one religion at a time would have made no sense to them. So I'm wondering about the category religion and the way that shapes our, our, our thinking and maybe even distorts our thinking. Maybe we wouldn't think of um, the kind of conversational work I'm calling for as odd or novel if we didn't first come to think of ourselves as citizens of one religion at one time, as though double belonging or multiple belonging was weird or new or illegitimate or syncretistic. All of these ideas seem to hinge on first inventing the idea of religion, than inventing the notion that you can only be one of these things at any one time, which simply doesn't make sense for most of human history. Well, within that same article, Comparative Theology After Religion, you make the claim that religion itself, this concept of religion, is one of the West's most successful exports. Could you expand on what you mean by that? I'm still trying to think that through, but if I'm right, if most of the world's languages prior to contact with the West did not even have in their languages a word that would capture uh, the sorts of things we mean by religion, then it seems to me that the idea that um, to be Hindu is to be a member of a religion or to be Buddhist is to be a member of a religion is an idea that, that had to be learned and perhaps even taught. For example, I'm told by scholars who study Indian religions, that when the British first administered the census and asked persons to check a religion, uh, persons would routinely check Hindu and Muslim, much to the chagrin of census administrators. Uh, That that suggests that, that even the idea that whatever it is to be religious was to be one thing at a time uh, and to think of yourself as Hindu only as opposed to Hindu and Muslim or, um, you know, all that had to be taught. That is to say, it was, a res- it was a kind of exported idea that we had invented in the West. And I think we in- invented it in the West in part to give rise to uh, notions like the separation of church and state. Uh, I think even our constitution the American Constitution, might have been one of the documents instrumental in creating the idea that religion is the sort of thing one does in private life, but one's public life is not about religion. So I I think we have to figure out how we came to think about religion as we do. And I think when we do that, we'll see that it's in part a product of the West. So if I'm hearing you correctly, when and we can use now the language of colonization. When, when colonization occurred and Westerners moved into these Eastern dom- domains, one of the things that they brought was a sense of administration and categorization. And what I'm hearing you saying is that even this simple thing like a census form 
already has the idea of distinct categorization. And so we could imagine the, the person being very confused. They're, they're presented with a series of choices, and they say, well, I'm influenced by all of these, and so they check all of them. And the administrator furrows his brow and says, no, 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 you must only check one. But don't we also have that, that same sort of categorization problem with questions like race, for example? Uh, indeed we do. And I actually um, want to ask how is the category religion like the category race? Um, I happen to believe, as many contemporary scholars do, that race is a fiction. But the idea that human beings are made up of people who belong to different races, that too was invented at some point, and it was not an innocent invention. That is to say, the very people who invented the category race invented that idea in order to rank order those races. Uh, as advanced or more prim- you know, more advanced or more primitive. So to place them in sort of a hierarchical order where there are some that are naturally below and some that are naturally above? That's correct. I, mean, I think the people who were instrumental in inventing the category race were also people who used uh, the pseudosciences of their, of their day, like phrenology and others, to suggest that some, some of those races are more advanced than others. And, of course, not accidentally the people who invented the category put themselves at the top. So um, I don't think race is an, is an innocent category. And I think an interesting shift happened when people, in, scholars who study race, uh, came to that conclusion. In the 60s and 70s, people talked about improving relationships among people who are in different races. So it was quite usual and common to talk about race relations theory. Well, until some scholars came to the conclusion that that kind of discourse is missing something. That is, if you if you say that you have to improve relations among the races, you already grant that human beings come in different races. And so um, thinkers in a movement called critical race theory said, well, wait a minute, how did we come to think of human beings as members of races in the first place? And does that make any sense, even biologically, let alone culturally? So if, if I'm hearing what you're saying, then if we take this category of race as being not a natural or a given category, and we extend that to the concept of religion, then it seems very clear that you would argue as well, that religion also doesn't have a sort of natural state or purity. So we couldn't talk, for example, about a pure Hinduism or a pure Buddhism over against a pure Christianity. Am I hearing that clearly? You are hearing it uh, dead on. I, In part, I wonder how these singularities, these homogeneities, get created. Because what they seem to occlude from view is the way in which all of these traditions have histories in which they were deeply shaped by each other. So, you know, if the kind of thinking I'm doing, namely this work of learning with and from my religious neighbors, is not really all that unusual, and it's been happening more or less throughout the whole of human history, then part of the way I can get that point across is by calling into question the idea that religions are neat, bounded, singular, fixed, static realities. By calling that fiction into account, I can open us up to the possibility that our traditions are always fluid, more like rivers than stones, to use an old image, um, So, and that these rivers flow in and out of each other, and so the, the, the idea that any of our traditions are pure, singular, stable, static, begins to fall apart. Human beings do have traditions. I just don't think they have religions in the sense that we've come to think of that category. This is Things Not Seen, and we're listening back to a 2012 interview with John Tatominil, professor of theology and world religions at Union Theological Seminary. He's the author of The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament, and he is a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. In talking about your contributions to uh, a, a more sort of uh, public discourse, 
You write often for the Huffington Post in addition to writing articles for scholarly journals. I wonder, do you consider yourself to be what we might call a public theologian? Yeah, I I think that although I probably didn't go into the theology game, um, in order to function as a as a public theologian, I think virtually every one of the issues I find myself addressing has broad public ramifications. Certainly, uh, I began first writing about matters in the public vein and publishing in the Los Angeles Times or the Washington Post and other such publications precisely uh, under the provocation of 9-11. It was then that I realized rather starkly that, that, that the work I'm doing to improve, um, and here my own language gets in the way of me, improve relations among religious traditions. Remember, I'm trying to complicate that language. That, that had... That kind of work has broad public implications, and so I can't I can't just be writing for other scholars. I can't just be writing for uh, the people who are doing this work in colleges and in seminaries, but must write some way for the, the larger public. After 9/11, since you mentioned that as a touchstone date, in the wake of 9/11, can we say that theology itself is now a political discourse? Yeah, I think it's always been. Imagine, for example, what it means just to say that some parts of my life are religious and some parts aren't. Now, if you take that distinction for granted, then presumably people who don't understand and follow your distinction can be classed as fundamentalists. So, for example, in the West, we neatly separate matters that we think are political from those matters that we think are religious. And we take it to be a mark of an advanced culture or civilization but it knows not to confuse the political and the religious. And what do we call people who we think confuse the political and the religious? We call them fundamentalists. So that's that's interesting because it sounds, from the earlier part of the conversation, it sounds as if this this notion of interflowing of religious traditions would be very much a progressive or a liberal enterprise and the only people who would be standing against that would be people that we might classify as fundamentalists. But if I'm hearing you correctly now, even making that categorization of, of labeling someone as fundamentalist, you would find that suspicious as well. Yeah, I suspect that most of us use that kind of language under the impression that you can, in fact, neatly separate the political from the religious. And the religious goes, of course, into the private side of the equation. So, to be religious is what you do with your aloneness. To be political, you step out into the public square and you ought to know that these two ought not to be mixed. But what if that way of thinking is itself arbitrary, or at least a particular way of thinking that emerged for particular reasons in the West? And now we're beginning to wonder whether those distinctions really make much sense. For example, the idea that I could leave my religious convictions um, at home and that those convictions should in no way shape what I think of when I am entering the polling booth. Do we really believe that? Is it the case that my convictions about what justice looks like, what God wants for the world to look like, um, can those questions be considered merely private? you know, so so liberals have sort of accused uh, conservatives within their own tradition and elsewhere as not abiding by the distinction between the religious and the political. When I'm asking, who invented that distinction to begin with? So that's a fantastic question, and it speaks to what we might call the notion of deep history. And in paying attention to, to deep historical questions like like the construction of race as a category, the construction of religion as a category that can somehow be exported, we're going deep into the very history of European colonialism itself, it sounds like. And I'm wondering, do you feel that there is uh, something very valuable to be gained for theology in looking at this deep history of European colonialism in a critical fashion? Yes, um, uh... 
obviously I do. I I actually think that it's very much related to the conversations that are currently happening about the post-secular. Some have suggested that the modern moment is passing and that the modern moment was the moment in which, at least in the West, we did abide by the distinction between, or at least attempted to, whether we actually ever did is another matter, but we attempted to abide by the distinction between the private and the public, the religious and the secular. And, and religion was supposed to somehow die out or disappear into a secular age that was now arriving. Uh, as most people have noticed, this doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, nobody got that memo uh, that they were supposed to cease and desist in being religious. And so people have talked about a postmodern and post-secular moment as the moment that we are now entering. So um, if that's so, if we're moving into a postmodern or post-secular moment, and the modern moment was defined by the invention of the distinction between the religious and the non-religious, the religious and the political, or the religious and the economic, then, then you do need a deep history to figure out, hey, wait, wait a minute, where did these categories come from? How did we learn to think and arrange the furniture of the world and the categories in our head in this particular fashion? And what does the future hold? I suspect most of us do not, well, I shouldn't speak for the whole of the American public, but I think many of us would be reluctant to want to return to a pre-modern moment in which theocracy of some kind holds sway, but we don't quite know what the postmodern moment or the post-secular moment will look like. If we no longer think that religion is supposed to be just what you do with your solitariness, it's just about how you get saved, if we again return to a larger sense of religious as uh, the religious as a, as a public activity, then how do we do that together when we're living in the world's most religiously diverse nation? I don't know that we have very many good answers to that question yet. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're rebroadcasting a 2012 interview with our guest John J. Tatamanil, who is Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He's the author of The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament. And since we aired this interview, he's at work on a second book entitled Religious Diversity After Religion, Reimagining Theologies of Religious Pluralism. You can find out more about Professor Tatamanil at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen, and we're listening back to a 2012 interview with John Tatamanil, Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary. Earlier this year, uh, Ibu Patel, the director of the Chicago-based Interfaith Youth Corps, spoke to the Association of uh, Catholic Colleges and Universities. And during Ibu Patel's talk, he noted that almost every American university has a diversity office, but almost none of them have expertise in religious diversity. And I'm wondering, if you were doing the hiring, what would be the qualifications that you would say were needed for an expert in religious diversity? Wow. Uh, that's a deep question also. You have a knack for them. Um, I'm not sure that even Ibu Patel uh, would have a fully formulated answer to the question, in part because we don't know how to answer it just yet, because almost all our conceptions of diversity are focused around uh, issues of race and gender. Uh, I think part of what Ibu is getting at is that those no longer... Those are no longer sufficient. We need people who can uh, mediate and reconcile persons uh, from across religious traditions and as they seek to build a life together. Does your diversity officer know the religious holidays, know what the difference is between halal and kosher, know how to uh, reconcile people from different communities as they seek to live together on a college campus? 
I think all those sorts of questions are the ones that he is trying to get us to ask. In other words, why are we being, why are we doing such a good job on, uh, relatively good job, uh, on questions of race, gender, and sexuality, but not, uh, but somewhat tone deaf on the question of religious diversity? Uh, that's the question he wants to ask. I, I think what, what qualification such a person needs to have, well, I don't know that we're, I think we're still mapping that out. Well, and that, that pushes me to then ask this, and I recognize that the categories of religion and therefore the notion of the interreligious are already problematized in your project. But for lack of a better phrase, we seem forced by the present moment into a type of interreligious dialogue. And again, for want of a better term, let's use the term interreligious dialogue. And it's clear that you see this as a very positive uh, opportunity but it also might hold some danger. Is there a danger in this moment of, of, of interreligious dialogue? Uh, that's a deep question. Um, I think certainly there is the danger that interreligious dialogue might force people to think of their traditions as religious in the way that Christians think of the term religious. So part of the, part of the worry is um, how is the conversation and the terms for the conversation set by the people who inaugurate the conversation. Often it's Christians, so and often Christians in the West. So the, the very way the conversation gets going um, might be difficult to recognize for persons from other traditions who sometimes find themselves saying things like, well, Hinduism is not a religion, it's a way of life. In other words, the very way they they resist the term, suggest that they're not entirely comfortable with Western constructions of whatever the thing called religion is. So one of the dangers is that uh, we might be forcing other people to look like us in order to talk to us. A second danger is who gets forgotten. Even in uh, the title that I have here at Union, uh, Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions, I... I'm always nervous about the world religions category because I ask, well, who, which traditions get to count as world religions? What about the various First Nations people? What about their traditions? They are rarely classed in the category world religions, whereas that, that latter term is reserved for traditions like Hinduism and Buddhism, Judaism. Um, and it should be noted, even Jews are not necessarily comfortable with Judaism being described as a religion. So, yes, interreligious dialogue is deeply promising. I think we do need to learn from and with each other, but we need to be sure that we aren't rigging the conversation in a way that introduces asymmetries and leaves some people out from the conversation from the get-go. I'm certain that some of my listeners will be very skeptical of some of the claims that you've made with regard particularly to the notion that Christianity doesn't have a pure form. And so for the sake of those listeners who may still be wrestling with even the very concept of, of what we might call interreligious dialogue, what can Christian theology learn from another tradition like Hinduism or Buddhism? What would be the value of engaging that in a deep way? That is a fantastic question. My first answer to such questioners would be to say that we have already learned deeply from traditions other than our own, and demonstrably so. So, for example, uh, Memphis being uh, one of the central sites in the struggle for uh, integration is one of the sites where interreligious learning has most robustly taken place. Because I don't think you can have the movement of nonviolent resistance as practiced by Gandhi, uh, as part, practiced by King, apart from his learning from Gandhi. So the very way in which um, King and Baird Rustin and many others, including some of King's teachers, went to India some cases had personal meetings and dialogues with Gandhi and learned about nonviolent resistance 
and even came to think of Jesus himself as a practitioner of nonviolent resistance, and then reread the Sermon on the Mount as a program for nonviolent resistance. All of that is a prime example of how a faithful Christian, deeply grounded in his own tradition, uh, learned from tradition other than his own, and came even to see Jesus anew by looking at how a non-Christian learned from and sought to embody the meaning of Jesus' teaching in his own life. So I don't think I have to make a case that this is a useful thing to do. I can say this has already happened. Christians have been transformed by the interreligious receptivity of Martin Luther King and those who worked with him and around him. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to a 2012 interview with John J. Tatamanil, Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful, and it helps us to get the word out about the show. And as always, we thank you for listening. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have them all archived on our website. So if you're just now starting out to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And as I mentioned, we are returning now to our 2012 interview with John J. Tatamanil, Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He's the author of The Imminent Divine, God, creation, and the human predicament. Several um, of what we might call the major religious traditions, and I'm thinking right now of the Abrahamic faiths, they all have in part of their narrative, or as part of their narrative, a mechanism of um, sort of border patrol. And the, the phrase I want to reach for here is the notion of idolatry. And so how can you counter when someone who is deeply... Uh, beholden to their own tradition, raises the objection that any kind of cross-pollination or cross-conversation is simply a conversation with idols and with false gods. I think part of what one has to do uh, in facing up to the importance of such objections is to say that the posture that we address towards religious others speaks a great deal about the quality of our own religious life. If we are inhospitable to religious neighbors, if we don't display an attitude of receptivity, curiosity, uh, eagerness to learn with and from our neighbors, are we really exemplifying the core virtues of our own religious tradition? In other words, uh, to Christians I routinely say, to what extent is what you say about a tradition other than your own an example of bearing false witness and thus a violation of one of the Ten Commandments? If you simply don't know much about a tradition other than your own and you proceed nonetheless to speak about it, it is my contention that quite likely you will, in fact, be guilty of bearing false witness, of mischaracterizing, misrepresenting a tradition other than your own, due to your own lack of information. 
So part of my argument is you must know the other. If you're to live your own religious life well and be a faithful person in your own tradition, because virtues like hospitality, solidarity, openness, mutuality, these are these are core virtues of our own traditions. Um, also, to Christians, I wonder how it's possible for us to love our neighbors while dismissing from the get-go what animates them, what gives them life, what gives their lives meaning. Is it possible to love your neighbor while dismissing everything they hold dear? Now, this is not to say that we ought to be in every respect, uncritical about the convictions and practices of persons from other religious traditions. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's quite often the case that taking a tradition seriously enough to disagree with it is actually a greater mark of respect than simply saying, well, yes, you know, I know you people do that, but I, I'm indifferent to it. So I, I think there's room for serious disagreement and vigorous debate. But the posture of of simply dismissing a tradition other than one's own uh, from the get-go seems to me incompatible with the virtue of love. So I would say to a variety of our traditions that you cannot be a faithful Christian if you aren't also an open Christian. So this claim about the necessity of hospitality and the, the necessity of love of neighbor I think is a very powerful model that a lot of listeners will resonate with. But I wonder, is there, are there places where this is actually being practiced, this kind of deep interreligious, for want of a better term, dialogue is taking place with that notion of hospitality? And I, I wonder if it is taking place, is, is it only taking place in the universities or are there places in the public sphere that you could point to that that listeners could maybe join in with this kind of this kind of hospitable interreligious commingling. Oh, uh, David, the good news is, is that it's happening everywhere. Um, it's happening at local citywide interfaith councils where people gather from churches, synagogues, mosques, and try to look at the issues going on in in uh, in their community. So many cities have interfaith councils. And one way to get involved is to get involved in the work that those councils are doing. Increasingly, one finds that women's groups are meeting in in small ways to facilitate conversation. So uh, one of the, my students here was one of the co-authors of a book called The Faith Club, in which she gathered uh, a group of, uh, I, I think initially just three people, um, uh, a Muslim woman, a Christian woman, and a Jewish woman began to talk about questions of faith across religious difference. So such small groups uh, are actually found in, in, in many cities where people are actually um, engaging in what doesn't sound like sort of grand uh, interfaith dialogue done by academics sitting around, you know, high-gloss wood tables, but just really intimate gatherings. So that kind of thing is happening. And then, of course, um, I suggest that these things are happening in our churches where people are living their fluid lives between Eucharist and yoga or Eucharist and Vipassana. But uh, And so in their practice life, they're doing something that's already interreligious. Whether they get to talk about that dimension of their lives uh, or keep it secret, that, you know, because they're sort of not sure if it's kosher to use a mixed religious metaphor. Uh, it's you know, the point is something like that is already happening, and it, it can be brought to deeper reflection as people learn to to talk about it more openly and reflect more openly about it. So I want to say it's happening in local levels, citywide levels, um, in small groups. It's it's happening, and it only takes an, an open eye to say what, where is it happening in my community. Well, John Tatominal, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, you're most welcome. We've been listening to a rebroadcast of our 2012 interview with John J. Tatominal. He's Associate Professor of Theology and World Religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. His areas of research include comparative theology and theologies of religious pluralism. 
When we spoke, he had just published his book, The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament. Since this interview aired, he's been at work on a second book, Religious Diversity After Religion, Reimagining Theologies of Religious Pluralism. He's chair of the American Academy of Religion's Theological Education Steering Committee, and he runs a series of summer seminars on theologies of religious pluralism and comparative theology for the American Academy of Religion. He is also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. You can find out more about Dr. Tatominil at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at the studios of KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keja. Jeff Krause engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoff. Katie Scroggett is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.